Welcome to the CXM Experience. Uh, this is part two of our conversation with Katie Martell. We're having a really, really interesting conversation on brand authenticity uh, and how that contributes to experience in the 21st century. So uh, let's go back to the conversation with Katie. And as usual, I am Grad Khan, CXO at Sprinkler. And uh, thanks for listening. So, you know, are you familiar with the Fearless Girl statue that's down on Wall Street? More than I want to be. And I'll tell oh, you why, but tell okay. me your take on it first. Well, I'm just, I'm just uh, reporting the news here. So, I mean, I, she was uh, put up by uh, a company called State Street Global Advisors, which is an asset management company. Uh, and that was in 2017. So at this point, you've been married a year. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know if you're still stoned on the couch or not. But we'll get a little peek into the first year of your marriage in a second, I guess. Um, but uh, but this, it's been, I think, right now, she's got the uh, RBG collar on. So that's mm -hmm. kind of cool. Um, but uh, there's been, I think, good and bad things um, said about it um, in terms of I think there's some pandemonium sort of criticism of it. But then there's also like, if it encourages one person to think differently, then that's a good thing too. So what's your, what's your take on it? It's, I'm glad that you asked this. Um, I think what we're getting into is the, the question of um, what is the danger of stuff like this, pandering, or what I call performative brand allyship. Um, so, State Street oh, Global Advisor actually launched brand this. allyship. Oh my! <laughs> you just you, you just wait. I'm, like, gonna, I'm gonna drop you, some words. What's going on here? Performative brand allyship. That is yeah, like just wait. Gold. Do you have like <laughs> do you have like your own thesaurus or something? Like that is awesome. Like the, I will that say, is really I, great shit. I've been you working should. on a. I've been <laughs> I didn't come up with that, but I have been working on a book and a documentary about this. And so I am obsessed with this topic. Um, okay, let's keep going. This is awesome. Yeah, okay, great. Trust me, don't get me started. Stage Street Global Advisors um, launched that campaign. And I actually know the people behind it. I, I booked them to speak at an event. It was fantastic. And I got to see behind the scenes how it came to life. It was a huge success story for the brand. International headlines. I mean, the earned media on this thing was like money, right? Um, they launched it in March. And March is a really important month. It's uh, actually a very important day, March 6th, International Women's Day. Yeah. And so every major brand launches, you know, their what's called femvertising, right? Feminist advertising on this day. You'll see it in March. Count, you know, mar mark your calendars, look for it. Um, they launched this thing and uh, it, it was about celebrating the power of women in leadership. It, it represented a new fund that they were launching. Um, and it, again, it went viral. Like this was Absolutely, the campaign yeah. everyone they talked about. It. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you look a little further. Now, this is not State Street at large. This was State Street Global Advisors. So the company State Street, which is much kind of broader, there's a $5 million settlement to settle allegations that uh, female and black executives were paid less than their white male counterparts. Um, and they have a, a leadership team that is majority male, all white. You know, it's not like it's a, um, I don't know if there's a, a very clear black and white way to say this is right and this is wrong, right? And I think this is where that nuance comes in that you mentioned and why I'm so fascinated by this. You can look at this and say, oh, that's pandering, that's wrong. But as a marketer, we look at this and go, it worked. Is it wrong that people still pose in front of the charging, the, the fearless girl with like their pussy hat? And do, is it really a bad thing for the brand? Yeah, they may have done things that seem unethical, but is marketing meant to be ethical? You know, and I think there's a lot of ways to look at this. Um, and so I've been looking at it pretty much, uh, I don't know, 
for now since 2016, since 2017, I do think there are dangers. I do think there are real risks to um, brands that performatively become allies rather than like a Patagonia living the values throughout the business. Um, there's obviously risks to the brand. You were kind of touching on this, right? It, you could get called out, you know, as well as I do, right? We're living in an age of uh, cancel culture and, and anything that you do is going to be under a microscope. It will be, um, it will be looked at and compared against your, your action. Your words are going to be compared against the way you live them. But I also think it doesn't do a lot for the women's rights movement, something that is actively being fought for day in and day out. It actually, I think, creates a very dangerous illusion of progress. It makes the yeah. world seem far more equitable than it really is. And it prevents us from addressing the issue head on because looking at an ad like that or a campaign like Fearless Girl, your, your instinct, you do what marketing tells you. It's, it's to give you this perception that a company like State Street is on the front lines of the fight against women's rights, where if you open and look behind the curtain, it's not exactly the truth. So I, 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 have an, I could go all day about the risks, but I'd love to get your take on that. What are the risks well, of the performance? Yeah, so I, I want to talk about authenticity in a second, because I think that's where you're heading with all this stuff. And I, and I want to relate authenticity to experience, because I think that's also, there's, they're connected ideas. But just like, I got a couple of sides, because you're just tweaking me here, because I've got the same, same uh, itch I need to scratch. Um, yeah, there's actually, one of my favorite um, visuals from the protest that sort of erupted around the time of Donald Trump's election, there was a, an older woman uh, standing in the street. Um, she was probably, I don't know, she was like not, not super old, but like a mid sixties, that kind of thing. And she's holding a sign. You may have seen this picture. She's holding a sign. And the sign says, I can't believe I'm still protesting this shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's mm-hmm. a little bit of what, like, how long is it, is this going to take? Uh, this is not exactly something we just kind of came up with yesterday. And I do think that that's, there's a, there's a major issue there because we're now multi-generational on this. Right. And I, I, so I think that there's this authenticity that, um, people are hungry for. And again, politics aside, I do think something that Donald Trump really leveraged and really sort of was able to sort of make something of is this idea of being, um, just saying what he wanted to say you know, just being authentic. I mean, a lot of his supporters and a lot of the people who support him love the idea that he's not a politician, that he would, when he would say things that were impolitic, um, instead of being angry about it, like outraged, I can't believe you just said that, which, you know, many people in the country would say, a lot of his supporters are like, that's, that's just him being real. That's just him talking. That's like, that's not politics. It's not, he's not filtering it through, you know, advisors and stuff. And I think there is something that has happened in our society where we're so afraid to say things that there's a general sense of inauthenticity overall. And I think where that starts to impact people is that when I'm working with a brand or if I'm going to do something, I want to feel like I've got an authentic experience. Like I feel like I want to be connected to humans in a real way because that's what drives that experience. I spend a lot of time uh, in theater. And I think one of the things that's, that keeps theater alive and vibrant uh, when, it, when it comes back, it'll be great. It's going to be amazing when it comes back. But it keeps alive and vibrant is that there's, a, there's an authenticity on the stage because that's the actual performance, right? You know, it's not edited. You know, it's not great camera angles. It's not, you know, CGI. Uh, in fact, I think the more that there's more, the more CGI there is, movies are great and they're spectacular. But, you know, theater's gotten just as big at the same pace because people crave authenticity. Uh, so I think, and a lot of what you're saying, I think, is how do you stay authentic and how do you talk in a way that's real? And I think people respond to that because they want to, 
feel like you're talking to a real person. Right. Right. And I, I, I think that, I mean, we could go a few angles, directions from that, but I, the way I, I want to go is, is to tie this back to CX and customer experience. There is a through line and I, and I, yes, it's about authenticity, but unfortunately authenticity has been become one of those buzzwords. It's just become one of those things that you throw around and it's become kind of meaningless. So I like to think of brand. I like to think of allyship. Again, when you think about how companies actually support some of these social movements um, as a promise, right? You make a promise as a brand to live up to uh, a number of expectations. And if you're a customer dealing with that brand, those expectations are mired in service and in responsiveness and relevance and all the tenets that you and I have talked about on previous stuff around customer experience, right? Living up to that promise is how you demonstrate authenticity. Simply doing what you say you're going to do and, and being someone who lives up to what they say, that's trust, that's authentic, right, uh, action. It's the same thing with this woke-washed performative allyship thing. When you get out there and you say to the world, you know, you might have a, a cohort of your employees marching in a pride parade, right, when wearing your T-shirts, Target, Apple, all of them. There were like 400, by the way, last year, two years ago in the latest um, pride parade, 400 different groups you're making a promise by doing that. You're basically saying to the world and these social movements that are living and breathing and happening right now, you're making a promise that A, you understand those movements. B, you're willing to do the things necessary to help those movements, to actually support the fight for women's rights, to actually support the Black Lives Matter movement. Brand is a promise. You live up to it in your customer experience or you fail and you live up to it or fail when you look at the actions of a business against some of these, uh, you know, larger, kind of irrelevant, almost looking, uh, you know, social movements. And I, I think that when you can align actions and words, that's where you get accountability. That's where you get authenticity. That's where you see great brands starting to build what I believe will be the next era of long-term brand. Companies that live up to these values and stand for something far more than the products they sell. Patagonia is going to be around for a long time because they they saw the writing on the wall in, in terms of the uh, sustainability trend, as it were, now becoming kind of front and center. They're going to be around forever because they know that this is one of those uh, movements that isn't going away. Feminism is not going away until <laughs> we solve the problem. That old lady can put her sign down. It's It's one of those movements that you either live up to it or not. You either demonstrate that you understand what women in your organization need, equal pay, transparency, family leave, all the all the things that go into supporting women, or not. And I do think that's where it's black and white. Brands like to kind of get into this, you know, shades of gray where, oh, we have a platform. Like, look at what happened in June, right? Did you um, spend any time on Twitter in June this year? If you did, you'd see, you know, a sea of these black squares with white text yeah, basically saying, right. you know, we're here for Black Lives Matter. And I love all of the people on Twitter that ended up calling out, you know, brands for live, just straight up living the opposite. So if you want to say that you're with Black Lives Matter, show us the receipts. Where are you investing internally, right, to improve representation, to improve diversity? And there's a million ways that companies can do that. But what I don't think is enough is to say, we have a platform, so it's enough for us to get people thinking about this cause differently. Companies have to recognize they're part of the fabric of society. They're made up of individuals. And they're made up of resources. And all of these things can be used to help these movements in far more impactful ways than a Super Bowl ad or a tweet in the month of June. And I think this is going to be what we start to see 
consumers expect, and employees, by the way, expect from their employers. Uh, if you're getting caught off guard, you're already behind in this area. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally hear you. It's, it's challenging too, though. I mean, um, you know, this, the, the issue of diversity is uh, a, not, it's a somewhat North American centric uh, and potentially Western centric point of view. So I don't know if you've spent a lot of time in, in Asia, um, but you know, I was at a very large company, uh, spent a couple of days at a very large company in South Korea. Um, you know, great company, uh, fantastic company, you know, one of the world's great companies. Um, you know, not a lot of diversity in the lunchroom because hmm. they're all South Koreans. And, and I think that's, which is fine. I mean, I was the diversity, I was the diversity of change in the room. And, and it was like, and it was an interesting, uh, I slightly eye-opening experience for me, which is like, oh, interesting. Cause like in South Korea, most people are Korean. And so they, they, they're not, they're not the melting pot or mosaic, depending on what country you come from. Canada is a mosaic, U.S. is a melting pot, but they're not that sort of mixture that you tend to see elsewhere. And so what's, what, how do they do that? Right. So they don't want to say, we just sell TVs to South Koreans, obviously, because they're a global company. Um, their management team is not diverse quotation marks, depending on your perspective. Right. Um, but they certainly could still support the principles of it, mm-hmm. right? They can mm-hmm. still support the principles of being, you know, thinking of humanity as a single global village and thinking of all peoples being equal. You know, feminism is a philosophy of equality. Uh, I, I think you can support those things and not necessarily not be whatever color we choose is not right this week, Right. Certainly, I think, certainly. I think that's where the this that's where I think some of this stuff is super tricky. I think you have to be sort of thoughtful. I think there's this uh, danger that we sort of also force everyone to do sort of false diversity, uh, totally. just, you yeah. know, just to be, and then and that's not going to be good for anyone either. Uh, you know, and I think it's going to be a while. We'll probably have another probably probably another thousand years, I would guess. Um, before we get mixed up enough that we sort of stop judging it. But to a certain extent, you know, I think that it would really be nice if we lived in a time when we were humans, not necessarily this kind of human or that kind of human, right? And I've always had a, I've had a longstanding belief that what we really need is a good old fashioned, you know, Independence Day style alien invasion. Uh, that would, because we, we are, we are all going to look equally tasty to the aliens. We're, we're all going to taste the same. We're all going to look the same. We're going to be equally delicious. And, uh, and that would really, uh, I'll tell you, that would really get us uh, on the same page. And I, you know, I've got a dog, right? I've got this wonderful um, terrier Labrador mixed dog. Uh, and I would, you know, spend a lot of time with other dogs. You know, I mean, she's constantly like talking to other dogs and we're bumping into, you know, all these dogs all over the place. I don't think I've ever seen another dog that looks like her, but I don't think I've seen another dog looks like another dog. Like they all look different. But Wouldn't they don't that be lovely? Care. Wouldn't that like, be lovely? Think, I, yeah, right? Like, our how? I love that idea. Are we like why no, dogs, don't care. dogs get along and cats get along? And how come? Why? Why are humans also obsessed with like what color our skin is or our hair is and stuff like eh, that? So like everything weird, else, right? it's, it's about power. And I do think that um, you know, I, I love that. Uh, 
I love that you had the experience of, of in South Korea being a token in the room, you know, oh, I'm the only one in this room that looks like me, right? That's a very um, strange experience. And I do think that it's an experience that um, you really don't understand until you've lived it in a sense. Um, I'll tell you, you know, from my perspective, I do think that it, aliens would love all of us equally in terms of how we taste because yeah, that's what we're Although about. Cases, it some of us probably taste better than others. Like depends on your totally diet, agree. right? Like if it's Given, vegetarians, you definitely taste better. <laughs> oh, I was going to say the couch sitters. We're like Kobe beef right now in terms of lockdown <laughs> habits, but um, don't tell my Peloton or my, or my wife who's a personal trainer, but <laughs> Wow, you're married to a personal trainer? That is super intimidating. Uh, you would think I would look oh, better. Truly. What were you thinking? Truly. <laughs> Honestly. And she's a boxer too, which is terrifying. But um, she know. absolutely could beat me up in a fight. But actually, there's a relevant there's a there's a, a, a really interesting way of looking at this issue. It, it you've got to almost look at it from the perspective of somebody who isn't in a position of of power. If you are someone like myself who's part of the the gay community, LGBTQ community, You've almost got to like remind yourself of the reality of, of of being part of this community. If I was transgender, for example, or I was you know transitioning, um, I'd be one of eighty percent of people in that community who experience harassment or mistreatment. You know, being misgendered, uh, awkward questions. Um, most people in this community report some kind of employment discrimination. I mean, it's really just. It's just an interesting reality that is lived by people of any minority, right? That these movements are working really hard to kind of fight against. Um, but it is about systemic power. And I know that word is like, okay, roll your eyes. What does that mean? Uh, look, if you're a woman, you're looking around the, the world right now and you're looking at the fact that only 22% of C-suite executives in the U.S. are women. It's like this very strange feeling of being the only person in a room is experienced by so many. There are also issues like one in four women return to work within two weeks of giving birth. Like that to me is something that we as a country here in the US, yes, specifically, um, should be able to address and should be able to fix. And look at all the innovation we're able to do. Why can't we fix these issues? And it's because these issues are not being taken seriously. They're either given lip service to, like Hear My Feminist Ad without any paid leave program, uh, or they're just considered not a problem because the people in power don't live them. And I don't mean to call out anyone who is, you know, white and male. You're certainly not trying to make anyone feel like a victim. What I think these movements and what I'm trying to do in this documentary and this book that I'm writing is just elevate the perspective that, look, organizations of any type, for-profit, nonprofit, large startups have a platform. We have an ability to create change in the world. That's what marketers do. That's what great products do. We disrupt things. We can make a lot of great change, right? We can make a lot of decisions um, that are both profitable and help move some of these issues forward that I can't believe still exist. For example, I still can't believe that one in three women under the age of 34 are sexually harassed at work. One in three yeah, like one in three, these yeah. are the issues, right, that are that are being dealt with, and I think are being smoothed over. Um, if we are, if it's hard for us to admit that these problems still exist, and I, I just think that if you're ever in a position where you feel like, what's the problem? You got to look a little harder because the problem exists. You know, inequality, racism, it all exists in organizations. Not a matter of if, but where. And so, for me, 2020 
I like this reset of a new decade. I like the idea that a business can do well by doing good. I'm really encouraged by um, the, the B Corps and, and the world of business moving into the space of social change. I do believe it's a powerful force for good. Uh, as eyes wide open as I am that, look, we're here to make money, but we can do both. Well, it's, uh, you know, one of my sort of hobby horses as well as I love talking about history and how it sort of gives us guidance to the future. And um, this is this cancel culture is not that new to humanity. Um, if you ever go to the British Museum, which is like one of my favorite museums in the world, it's essentially, I, have you been, have you been to the British Museum? I have. I love it there. Okay. So what's so cool about it? Like, I feel like I'm going, as I go room to room there, it's almost like the Brits are like, and then we took over this country and took all their stuff. <laughs> and then we took this country and took all their stuff. Then we were in this other country. Oh, they had some really cool stuff. It's right there over there in the cabinet. It's so awesome. Anyway, so and we're not giving any of it back. Nope. Um, so <laughs> so <laughs> now we've insulted Britain. That's great. Uh, anyway, so uh, but uh, but with this, there's a you go into the Egyptian gallery, which is quite extraordinary. Um, many, if not almost all, the statues uh, don't have faces. Uh, and they, in many cases, they're quite pristine, but they're missing their faces. And these are, in some cases, granite statues that you know will last for a long time. And uh, do you know why they don't have faces? I don't actually. Okay, well, you can use this in your documentary if you want. Thank you. So, um, what used to happen is when a ruler a ruler was around for often a while, they would be around long enough to get a bunch of cool statues made of themselves with their likeness on it. Then that ruler would die and a new ruler would come to power. And the new ruler would have the likeness, the face, chiseled off all the statues and replaced I love with this. like a plaster version of their likeness. Oh my God. I love this. So the statues still look like statues. They still had faces, but of the new ruler. But with, you know, the ravages of time, the... The, the replacement face, which was made out of, you know, a compound, uh, weathered away or disappeared. And all that remained was the chiseled off front of the face. And I don't know, there's a, there's a little bit of chiseling going on all the time. And it's, uh, do we replace it with something more permanent or less permanent? Kind of interesting. I think it's an interesting analogy there. I do love that. I do love this. I, don't, I think the faces of movements is where my mind goes here, right? We have a, a, a history in this country of social movements that, you know, you think of the gay rights movement and Harvey Milk and you think of Black Lives Matter and MLK and these women that have, you know, been part of the women's rights movement. And, and in 2020, I mean, feminism is sponsored by Pepsi. Not really, but you know what I mean? It's this very strange, like brands want to be the face of these movements now without doing any of the work that some people have lived and died for, right? To actually uphold some of these movements. So I'm always going to come back to this topic of performative allyship and the, the dangers of it. But I love this idea that um, if somebody doesn't represent uh, the times, we can just scrape their face off and put our own up there. What, <laughs> what right? a terrifying and, and, and uh, encouraging. Awesome? Yeah. I love that metaphor. I really do. <laughs> Uh, Katie, this is fantastic. Uh, thank you so much. I'm going to sign out now and we'll see each other again soon, but this has been great. And I thank you so much for your time and energy today. It was, it was awesome and very thought provoking. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Grant. I really appreciate the opportunity. All right. Well, thanks everybody for the CXM experience. This is Grad Con and Katie Martell. 
and we'll see you next time.